do design decisions involve value judgments? Andy Halliwell has gone and posted this question on LinkedIn as part of our redesigning D&T project and debates. I think this is a really tricky one to answer and our expert group felt that it was an important question that needed debating. Do design decisions involve value judgments? I think firstly, I'd be saying, what do you mean by a value judgment, a values judgment? And maybe in your response to Andy's question, you'll explore what you understand and what your views are of what value judgments are and then whether they actually impinge on or affect the design decisions that designers make and also that children make in D&T lessons. So do join the debate. We're always open to conversation and discussion on this. But for now, on to the next episode. This is the Talking D&T podcast, episode 101. Welcome to the Talking D&T podcast with me, Alison Hardy, a podcast for anybody interested in design and technology education, where I'll be sharing news, views, ideas and opinions about D&T. So this is another one of my episodes where I'm talking with somebody I've never met face-to-face and actually only got to know through social media again. Um, so it, there is there are joys in social media, but there are some negatives. But this is a joy um, to connect with somebody who's involved in design education at the Open University. So Derek, I'm going to hand over to you to give yourself a bit of an introduction about who you are, where you are and what you do. That's quite an introduction already, Alison. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, well, my name is Derek Jones. I'm a senior lecturer in sustainable design at the Open University in the UK. Um, the Open University is kind of still slightly unique that we are still entirely a distance education institution. So we don't have physical studios. We don't teach in classrooms. All our students are completely remote. Um, we have absolutely no entry requirements. Um, so teaching design in that sort of context is radically different to some other traditional contexts. Um, so that's that's what attracted me, I think, to the Open University. Um, I, I, the reason I say that as well is that I actually come from practice. I, I don't come from an academic background as such. Um, I'm actually an architect. I'm still, technically speaking, a qualified architect, just. Um, I haven't kept up with the latest changes to the technical standards, but you know. Um, So I've had 15 years of experience designing lots of different types of buildings. I've worked across um, lots of different design sectors as well. I acted as a client, not just a designer. Um, So I do still very strongly come from a practice background, if that makes sense. And I've, I suppose, brought that to my academic practice as well, um, needing to understand like how the whole production process works right across um, the Open University. Um, So, yeah, it's an interesting space to work in. We don't necessarily teach disciplinary specific design either um, we teach design as I guess a kind of form of knowledge in itself or as a mm-hmm. I suppose it's what you would call design thinking these days I suppose it's you know technically speaking you could argue it's at the Open University where design cognition and the original formation of design thinking kind of started way back in the 1970s um, I suppose that's the other point I should make is that this isn't new we've been doing this for quite a long time 50 years now um, our 50 year anniversary of when the first design course was written is coming right. up as well. So, uh, yeah, we've been doing this for quite a while. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's so many questions I want to ask you already about okay. how do you do a design course when you haven't got a studio, which I'm sure is the obvious question <laughs> yep. to, to be asking you, because you're like, I can't, I can't visualise this then. So I know that OU is all online. I've got, I've got a good friend who worked in education 
uh, at OU. So, so can you give us a little insight into that before we go any further? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, God, where do you start with this? Um, yeah, good. I mean, there's, there's so much you've got to unpack. Even in asking that question, it comes from so many assumptions. I mean, you could ask the same question yeah. of secondary school teachers. And we were reminded of this last week when we did a presentation on the studio project that we're working on just now is what happens if you're teaching in a classroom where you don't have a studio, you don't have a space that's continuous for students to kind of come back to and they've got their own desk space. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really big and loaded question. I suppose it goes right back to the very start of the university. Um, and also one of the other things I think we're wanting to touch on today as well, Alison, the kind of design knowledge stuff. So that goes way back to Bruce Archer, the 1960s, the 1970s, yeah. the Royal College of Art, the design as a third way of knowing. Um, I'm going to start cheering. I can hear if Eddie Norman's listening. He's going to be cheering. Yeah. Oh, cool. yeah, OK. Brilliant. Bruce Archer, you're touching my heart already. Though. Sure, well, that's good. Well, just for everybody that doesn't know about it, I mean, it's a really kind of simple concept, but it's never really been, I don't think it's really been taken seriously. So it's the idea that, you know, if you want to talk about fancy knowledge or design knowledge or uh, sorry or any kind of like academic knowledge uh, Bruce identified the fact that you've got if you like scientific knowledge or formalized structured forms of logical propositional knowledge to use a fancy term um, and at the other end of the spectrum you've got artistic knowledge aesthetic knowledge knowledge that is subjective in quality that relies on uh, maybe collections of experts agreeing on something so between these kind of two spaces Archer contended that you've also got a third type of knowledge a knowledge that is constructed by doing, by knowing things, by experiential knowing, by creating stuff. And that's where professionals, and this is where Donald Schoen comes in as well, the professional practice becomes a space of a particular type of knowing. And I think we pay a lot of attention to both of these other two types of knowledge, particularly in secondary and primary schools. And um, we don't spend as much time on that third type of knowledge. We do perhaps in primary schools, you know, where you get to play in the sandpit, you get to play with the plasticine. But at some point you're told to put away those things and that making, doodling, drawing, expressing in anything other than certain types of forms of expression of knowledge, that's kind of suppressed slightly because there's definitely a hierarchy with this. There really is. There's a subject hierarchy. Um, and that can be a bit of a challenge. So I suppose if, to go back to the open university thing, that third way of knowing Archer had the theory, if you like, and there was a couple of really interesting and lovely reports that came out of it. And I know the changes that it made in secondary education, we could talk about that a bit later. But at the Open University, it was taken really genuinely seriously. And at the same time, there was a whole bunch of work going on in Manchester University. Nigel Cross, Robin Roy came from Manchester, I think they did their PhDs there, came to the Open University with design methods in mind. And this idea of design methods is really quite important, that you can not turn design into a recipe or something that's very explicit, um, but that it's actually more of a way of going about something. So that you can actually say, there's ways that we go about knowing something in design, and if you follow these steps, it might not give you the exact answer you want, but it will help you move forward. And as long as you are consciously aware of how you evaluate what's happening in these kind of steps, that's also part of your knowledge. Uh, and you can build these methods up um, and that's that's kind of like one of the it's one of the the, the secrets, if you like, of well, it's not really a secret, uh, but it's one of the ways that we teach design at a distance. It's through method, if you like, or through methods. Interesting, interesting. I was I was having this conversation um, 
I'm going to swear. Some people think I'm going to swear in the in the UK with somebody from Ofsted mm-hmm. uh, the other week about design education knowledge, and and I'd kind of come to a probably quite a late realization that there's a confusion sometimes in design and technology education that we're not. It's not a pedagogy. It's a design strategy or a design method, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So. Yeah. <laughs> So, for example, I might use, you know, teach children about or teach students about a creativity method, about a way of generating ideas. Mm-hmm. But I don't think about how the children are learning that yes. method. Yeah. I demonstrate that method. Yeah. Without yep. then helping the children realise it's a method that they have in their toolbox. Yep to use and that's what I mean about this confusion sometimes between design method design strategy and pedagogy yes yep and that's where I think sometimes there's that that design knowledge design thinking kind of gets lost in Mm -hmm. in D&T because we're not making that and it's not a clear demarcation but But there is, mm-hmm. but equally, a pedagogy in, de- in design and technology, which Matt McLean talks about, is demonstration. And so we yep. yes. demonstrate the method by doing it, yes, with, whilst yep. forgetting that the demonstration is the pedagogy and the method is what we're demonstrating, that the pupils... To, you know, I'm kind of going around in circles, but you know where I'm going, yeah. No, absolutely. I think, well, again, it's what we, I guess, we kind of don't talk about very seriously. Um so I suppose it's the opposite of knowledge as an object. Um, I mean, a really trivial example is remembering something. So the fact that Paris is the capital of France, that's almost like, it's like the gold standard of knowledge because very few people argue it. Some people do, but let's not go there just now. Um, that's another story. Like, so you have these kind of like easy types of knowledge and it's really, really, really tempting to just fall back on all of these easy kinds of uh, types of knowledge. And all subjects yeah. do it. Um, even in design, you know, I still remember that, you know, it's 150 mil from the ground level to the first level of the DPC, simply for reasons. I couldn't even explain what those reasons are. I just remember the fact. Now, James Webb Young, the graphic designer, when he wrote his little book on uh, technique for producing creative ideas, he referred to that type of knowledge as rapidly aging facts. It's almost worthless. But as designers, these are actually quite useful, but it's the use to which we put them that matters. Um, And the problem is that even in other subjects like chemistry or like mathematics, it's actually this other type of knowledge that we don't talk about that's actually more important. So whilst it's easy to remember a squared plus b squared squared plus c squared, it's actually the experiential knowledge. The way that you go about working out a right angle triangle is actually much more important than remembering the fact of it. And again, in Open University, we've actually made lots of moves, believe it or not, in mathematics to move to these kind of, this is like tacit transfer. This is classic Polanyi stuff. It's showing students what mathematicians actually do. And that's the difference, if you like, between knowing that or knowing how or knowing of. And again, we don't spend enough time talking about that second type. And basically design is a good 80, 90% of that second type of knowledge, that experiential knowledge, that contingent knowledge. And I think teacher training that focuses on that kind of latter type. So that example that you gave, you might demonstrate to students something. Say, for example, creative idea making. 
it's a completely it's almost a completely different teacher training that's required or, or, or teacher attitude that's required to develop the space within which the students learn for themselves. And this is where it's classic constructivist learning. Um, but it's providing that opportunity so that your demonstration is like that, that lovely phrase that oh, I can't remember who has it, that, that, that like but not exactly like. Because it's necessary that each individual student does have their own slightly different version of doing that thing. And that that mm. individuality is actually the thing that's celebrated. <clears throat> the underlying value will always come out as a result of it. I don't think we're good enough at expressing the value of these different types of knowledge construction. Um, and partly that's our fault as both design professionals and as design educators and design scholars. Yeah. Yeah, we kind of we kind of we kind of steer away from that type of conversation, yeah. mm-hmm. and you know, again, I'm kind of thinking oh, if if some people in government policy were listening to this, and you're talking about constructionism. Const- I always get it wrong which one it is, but anyway, um, and around experiential learning, there's a, yeah. a kind of a, a shock to kind of say no, 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 yeah. that's not that's not learning, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. I think. I can kind of see where they're coming from is because sometimes it's been completely abused that that there's nothing underpinning there's no clear pedagogy or relationship to the mm-hmm. disciplinary knowledge okay and I'm, people can't see me but I'm kind of making waves as if to say this isn't about facts but mm-hmm. the disciplinary knowledge to be able to articulate that in a conversation or in a talk to pupils or just with the setting up of an activity that's done in such a way that what they're learning and and Matt McLean talks about knowledge in action. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, You know, that that it's really clear and articulated. So yeah, as a result, we fall back on facts. Yes. I hear all the time in D&T about theory lessons. And I think I used to do theory lessons. And I look back and think, what on earth was I doing? But nobody was talking to me about why was it doing them? Yeah, yeah. Where do they sit? What are they for? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think we undervalue that side of what we do as designers. Um, I mean, I think in a recent talk I gave, I talked about um, almost certain like cognitive processes or design thinking moves that are actually closer to superpowers than anything else. And again, I go back to where we fall down, if you like, as design professionals. Um, in some sense, we never present to clients the 99 failures. We never, ever, or very rarely let people see the messiness of studio. We always present that final wow design. And there's so much focus on that, you forget just how much effort goes into all of that other stuff. Um, so that's partly our own fault, that we've preserved this mystique, if you like, the napkin, the sketch on the napkin, or the aha moment. And all of that is just absolute you know, it, it doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> a whole bunch of effort that goes into leading up yeah. to that moment, okay? And there's lots of good literature that supports that. What we haven't been good at, I think, as educators and professionals, is preserving the specialness of that and actually talking about it in very serious pedagogical terms. Let me give you an example. So how do you deal with a hyper-complex project? And I don't just mean complex, I mean potentially a wicked project. How do you deal mm-hmm. with something? that is so difficult that you just don't even know where to start. As a designer, I know what that feels like. I know what staring at that blank bit of paper is like. And one of your learning outcomes, if you like, if you're teaching any kind of design, is to help students deal with that moment of, 
where do I start? How do I actually go about this process? But we don't talk about that as much as we do the outcomes or the other bits and yeah. pieces. Another example, and this is where I do believe it does touch on almost like cognitive superpowers is, like say an optimism switch. Um, you know, like where you have to very quickly, really, really become deeply, deeply creative within like 30 or 40 seconds and then snap back out of that. So you go back into a realistic mode. Switching between all these kind of like cognitive modes of operation, it's really, A, it's deeply tiring. B, that's where the effort is. That's where all the ideas come out of. And then you hide all of that stuff and you only present the solution. But that's the stuff that you need. That's the stuff that you need to learn, if you like, as a designer. It's not the outputs. It's actually the process and the procedures that you go through. And I think if we can start to build up the language um, round about this so that we actually take it more seriously, as educators, as teachers, and then we can help students take it more seriously and then help to look after themselves almost to like learn how to use it a bit more seriously. Um, I think that would definitely help everybody. And, and I also think be able to articulate it better to people outside the subject. Precisely so, absolutely. Um, yeah. So that, you know, it's, it's understandable where we've got to in schools in a way, because if we've not been having these conversations within... And we've not been able to, I must admit, I'm continually developing my understanding. I mean, you said some things there that I thought, not got no idea what you're talking about, but I might oh, come back sorry. to you on that. No, 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 don't apologise, don't apologise. Um, partly being pushed to understand and hear about the things that you wouldn't hear about is part of the way you can think, right, I need to go and find, I mean, I've already written 10 things down on a bit of paper that I'm, I'm going to have to go, go back and, and pick up on. Excellent. And I've now completely lost my train of thought. Well, <laughs> that's the lovely thing about what we do isn't it both as teachers and as designers and it's what James Webb Young talks about as well these rapidly aging facts they're still useful like pick up concrete quarterly pick up um, you know Himalayan Potter's monthly or whatever it is all designers find inspiration in all of these sorts of things is that constant quest for I think there's something deeply deeply related between the desire for just learning for the sake of learning and the desire to be a designer. I think these two things are mm. there's an intimate relationship between those. Nigel Cross talked about this as well. He never developed it though. Um, I'll need to ask him about this, why he never did this. But is that not, he, you know, he, he took Archer's work and he really did turn it into a foundation. Um, but then he also related it to learning for the sake of learning. Um, and it's a very close mechanism to that kind of curiosity and that iterative process that we go through as designers. Yeah. Um, so I do think there's still quite a deep intimacy. And when I see good teachers, you know, they're indistinguishable from good designers, the way that they iterate, the way that they're constantly observing, the way that they're constantly um, being yeah. agile in their processes and their thinking. I see that. I think there's a real strong relationship between these two. Anyway, I, I agree. And I, I reviewed a book recently. Um, <laughs> I, I, I co-reviewed it with... Daniela Scalacci Rowland and the book was Teachers as Designers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, which was fascinating. I mean, some of the chapters we looked at and we felt because we were writing it for the Design and Technology Education International Journal. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so some of the chapters we felt they weren't fully relevant to the primary audience. Mm-hmm. But for Daniela, as a te- as a secondary school teacher, yep. more of them were relevant because she's yep. a teacher. Yes, completely agree. And it kind of in many ways, I was reading this bit thinking, well, yeah, does DNT teachers know this? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's part of their yeah. culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, it's really interesting to see it being written about in a general education book, taking taking these ideas of design. Yes. So, yeah, yeah I think yeah. I think you you definitely 
you know, talking there about things that, that are happening. But but again, it, it's when people in the design education, design practice community then take that stuff they've been doing in design world mm-hmm. and start a bit like how you're saying this isn't a criticism of Nigel Cross, start talking about it in a different space, a more general space that then people outside don't see what is the uniqueness about design education and the way knowledge is formed and created and understood and established and recognized you know in the same way design thinking I did a podcast episode with um, David Spendler we had quite a conversation I kept saying to him what is design thinking then you know and it has been in many ways hijacked by the outside D&T design education community whilst we don't fully articulate Mm -hmm. what it is within the design community yep that makes sense no I completely agree I, I, I really genuinely do I think it's only very recently that we've even started to take seriously sometimes our own um, pedagogies. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's been lots of very, very good practitioners who have been doing that for a yeah. long time. Um, but because there's there's so few um, of them in some ways, that voice is very, very rarely heard. So the likes of Kay Stable, Susan Orr, uh, Alison Shreve, all of these people who are doing fantastic work, um, there's still so few of them. Um, but that's starting to slowly, slowly change and we're starting to take our own pedagogy seriously. And a lot of the work that we've been doing at the Open University recently to understand our virtual studio has absolutely had to change mainstream educational theories so that they fit better with what we understand as design educators. Um, and it shows to me the lack of attention that's been paid to design pedagogy in some ways that we've had to rely on these other experts coming in to tell us how it is that our pedagogies work that we don't need to because we are designers we are design educators we know it works designers come out the other end people are a little bit more creative after they've been to one of our sessions therefore we've never really had to kind of question it Um, until suddenly they start to say yeah but you don't really need that studio space do you or you can just do this in your curriculum instead of this Uh, and it's when you're challenged, if you like, in these things to actually say, well, what is it about what you do that is so special? That's where we have that kind of lack of language. So I would really like to see the work of all of those foundational writers, academics and thinkers really get taken a lot more seriously. And we're starting to now see that work being built upon. Um, And as I say, some of the stuff that we do at the Open University, it has built on that work and put some really quite hard and rigorous, um, sort of almost not just theoretical, but also experimental and pragmatic results to that. Mm. Our studios are huge. We'll have upwards of a, you know, between 800 to over a thousand students in a single studio. That's a lot of students. So again, we can see a different level and scale of, say, social comparison, social verification. And we have to almost redefine it in design terms to understand what students are actually thinking and doing. So we have to understand our subject in our own terms. And I think there's a growing confidence in being able to do that. And I would really like, at some, I don't know how we go about this or what the next steps might be, but I'd really like to expand that confidence mm. such that it's not just in higher education or further or secondary or even primary education but that we do it as a community that takes the whole praxis seriously as a form of pedagogy because yeah. i'm yeah, not looking at this just really sorry Alison, really quickly as the <laughs> idea of, if you like 
studio-based education is such a simple thing. It's been around for so long. That notion of an expert sitting down with a novice to demonstrate something, that's almost as old as humanity in some ways. It's almost like this is actually a foundational pedagogy from which classrooms have sprung only relatively recently. So you could look at it the other way if you want to invert it. Well, no, 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 the reason I was going to interrupt you was to say, you know, you're using the word studio and Mm. some people listening might not be clear about what you mean about this. Because you said on the one hand, we don't have physical spaces. And then you're talking about 800 to 1000 students Mm -hmm. in a studio. And I need some help visualising that. And what does that mean in your practice? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, my apologies for that. Yeah, we've been working on a studio project for um, a couple of years. This started... Um, a while back. It actually started when I was doing my own PhD. Um, I've only just recently finished my PhD, believe it or not. I thought it'd be quite an easy thing. I started teaching at the Open University. Um, Firstly, wondering how the heck can you actually teach at a distance? Like, uh, as your question earlier, um, just really intrigued by it. But one of the things that we do do is we have these online studio spaces, spaces where students can um, share their work. Um, They can actually see what's happening with other students' work. There's actually lots of little different mechanisms, particularly social mechanisms that, that are at work in our studios and because of the size of them. <clears throat> so I've always referred to them as studios. I've always understood them as a studio because I can see such synergy between a physical studio and where you would also engage in social comparison, social verification, um, and a whole bunch of other little things. So I see an immediate link between the two. I thought I was going to do my PhD on comparing virtual studios to physical studios. I presumed that I'd be able to just pick, you know, the book out of the library, the book on studio or the book on design. Nah, it just doesn't exist. There's nothing. Nobody's ever really sat down and defined studio. When you unpick it, it might be quite a challenge to actually define studio. But then it turns out... I'm, I'm, ho- I'm hoping my laughing isn't coming through too loudly and I'm not <laughs> laughing at you. I'm laughing with you because <laughs> yeah. I started my PhD thinking I was doing one thing and ended up doing something different. You know, I had this idea that it was this huge thing and I ended up just like doing the tiny fraction of what I thought I was going to do. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what was what was slightly dismaying was the fact that there's there's not really a collection or a really good collection of understanding of what studio might be across multiple modes. Um, So you get really good understanding of what an architecture studio is in the UK or what an interior design studio is in this particular professional context. But nobody's ever really pulled them all together, with the exception of some of the scholars I mentioned earlier. So, for example, Oren Shreve's work on the stickiness of curriculum is very close. So it's that idea that a studio has a a bit of a culture that kind of propagates itself. But nobody's actually boiled it down to, well, could we be a bit more pragmatic about this? Could we say that, um, can we collect the properties, if you like, of studio? And that's what we're doing with this studio project just now. We're looking at all of the scholarship in studio and trying to just put it all into a bag. Um, but as James Carazzo would say, one of my colleagues on the project, it's a string bag. It's got masses of holes in it. Studio is a flexible thing. It's got a bit of a recognisable set of core features. We don't know what they are yet. They might not even exist. Um, so there is this kind of weird commonality, but difference. So that's why... You know, for me, flexing between an online studio and our design curriculum is very like or very likened to, say, the architecture studio that I was brought up in. But I can also see synergies to, say, a secondary school um, studio that might just be sort of doing air quotes there. I'm conscious of the fact this is audio only, isn't it? Um, 
where it might be a classroom setting where you don't have a persistent space, maybe where students, the persistence for students is a project or a teacher or um, a theme, for example. Mm -hmm. Studio can be a lot of different things. It can be an idea as much as a concept. Um, again, I don't want to turn it into something that's so big. <laughs> but anyway, that's what we're trying to do with this. We're trying to bring it all together to at least help different studio teachers and practitioners at least pull down the bits that they think maybe relate to their studio and say, mm -hmm that's interesting or this is what my practice is this is what my practice is um so yeah that's what we're kind of working on just now so i do see a lot of synergies and my apologies if i don't make those clear no it's okay it's okay it's just it, it was just kind of like this word studio yeah mm -hmm. and and i presume i think really we don't talk about or don't use that word so much in design and technology education i can <laughs> hear some colleagues that i know going i use it i use it and i'm sure yeah. that there are people <laughs> Um, but how they define it, how they see it, yes. is it just a label for a label's sake or mm -hmm. is it yeah. um, an idea and a space that's, that's about where knowledge is shaped, created, established, mm -hmm. formed, questioned, isn't it? I'm, I'm going to oh, I'm going to oh. hedge my bets on this one. I don't know yet. I think it probably is both of the above. Um, I think sometimes people do just label it for the sake of yeah putting a label on it. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's partly because we haven't necessarily had um, any kind of... I mean, we've got foundational work that theorises studio. So, for example, um, Shulman and Taylor's work on like signature pedagogies. And that applies the idea of studio to any professional space within which you know, doing something or practicing something, that's where the learning takes place. That's where the, it's like the simulated space. And they give properties such as, you know, no front. It, it doesn't have a classroom. It doesn't have a one-to-many distributed learning mechanism to it. But actually just pulling that together and saying this is what it means in pragmatic terms. Um, and even a studio, sometimes it does have demonstration spaces. Sometimes it does have a one-to-many component, but then it breaks away and it breaks off into clusters. And again, as soon as you start talking about it in terms of um, like connections and clusters, one-to-many, many-to-many, you immediately recognise this, but this is just a secondary, a good secondary school mm. classroom. That's what you would do. And again, that's just what a good facilitator, a good educator would do. So by that definition, studio is, is much about the kind of curriculum and the teachers in that space and what that space allows you to do, doesn't allow you to do, what you can do with the furniture, what you can't do with the furniture, all of those things. So you need to keep, I guess, quite an open mind about what studio is in terms of the artifacts. Is it things? Is it ideas? Is it concepts? Is it stuff? Is it curriculum? Is it aims? Is it all of that kind of yeah. stuff? Um, yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, cool, blimey. Excuse me, <laughs> my head's been... No, it's all right, it's all right, because me and Matt um, were asked by the DfE before Christmas. Um, oh, Craig, no, it was it was last summer. <laughs> if we would put together a... a how do they call it? A high-level, minimal mm -hmm. space in terms of that there wasn't... It wasn't like a traditional workshop. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so we kind of had a day just sort of playing around with ideas, um, and then unfortunately with the spending review and, and yep. such, it didn't it didn't get taken anywhere. But it got us thinking, and I suppose yeah, we were playing around with that sounds playing around with, but we were exploring um, high higher tables with stools, and the tables were on wheels, so we could move them around. Um, that all of the kit needed to be in the room. We didn't really want to be having stuff. We might yep. have a small storeroom, but we yes. would have yep. um, handling collections, which is like what Kay talks about at Goldsmiths. Um, and Alice Hurd has just done a, 
a blog post <laughs> for us on a, a blog about this, about handling collections. <laughs> yes. um, but we, we also adopted some of the scale-up ideas. Yep. So if you can, yeah. So scale-ups for Nottingham Trent have kind of taken that on quite a long way. And that was about people being in round tables and, and being able to work on stuff together. And so we were, we were talking a lot about group work and teamwork, which is always a challenge when it comes to assessment. But, but there are ways, pedagogically, you can set up that space yes. uh, to do that. But we ended up with a, a huge wall, taking up the scale-up idea, that was a big whiteboard. Okay, yep. Mm-hmm. So that we had a projector in the ceiling. You're not, you're not writing these ideas and pinching them, are you, Derek? No, um, no. <laughs> But things like, so Sarah Davis and I had come up with a project about biodiversity for year sevens. And the setting would be that the the children in groups would come up with ideas and and manufacture um, a a product to make a garden more biodiverse. Okay, but the items would be sold in a garden centre. And so I was to Matt and say, well, we could project parts of a garden centre. Yeah, Mm -hmm onto that and we could kind of walk around it and the children could kind of walk around it yep. um and experience it and kind of role play you know some lose some of the ido ideas mm-hmm. um and, and and do sort of that and then and draw things on this whiteboard yep you know yep. and then you could kind of see i mean you know i've written some stuff about design fiction you know you could kind of do storytelling yep. with all of that yes um is that a pedagogy design fiction no actually it can be used in classrooms, but actually it's a design method. Am I using yep. that language correctly? But yeah, so yeah, that idea of studio and space. Mm-hmm. And therefore it does start to inform the curriculum aims. Again, yeah, you're absolutely right. But what it also depends on then is a certain set of key conditions. So that's a lovely example okay. you've just uh, given. Um, so yeah, we've got the design <laughs> method. Sorry, I just feel like I'm getting a tutoring now. Go on, tell me no, something sorry, else I, 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 I think about. Sorry, yes, you're right. I did. I went into. I went into. You completely did. So you completely did. I'm sorry. Thinking. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do I get a gold star for that? Thank you very much, Absolutely. Derek. Right. Okay. Now tell me what I need to do to remove it. What I've not thought about. Well, um, I, I think it's actually what you have thought about and what you've already included, but maybe you haven't um, explicitly declared it if that makes sense so um that's the interesting thing to me about this is that we do and it's like um the the distance design education blog um like a couple of years back when we were asked to help you know when people were moving to online and distance education spaces you would have thought that just asking the open university experts in distance learning we would have been able to say yeah you just do this 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 and this but as soon as people asked us we realised just how little we knew about what it was that we do because so much of it was implicit. So I started writing it out, thinking, you just do this. And then people would come back saying, what do you mean? What does that even mean? Because there's yeah. 20 assumptions behind what you've just said yeah. um, in something like whiteboard, for example. Uh, yeah. So abstract, not, I'm not abstracting for the sake of abstracting, but that, that's one of the reasons why we're hoping that this Studio Properties project, I'm not trying to sell a project at all. It's simply a piece of... Um, work for the community, um, the design education community, and we are interested in hearing anybody's ideas that, that, that can fit into this. It's trying to identify those things that we also take for granted, that we assume that are invisible as much as the things that are visible. So the whiteboard is the visible thing. But what's the underlying importance behind that? It's almost like, what's the property? Um, I mean, what immediately springs to mind is two <coughs> lovely recipes that... Um, 
we did for, uh, I've written two recipe books, believe it or not. One was on recipes for remarkable research, and that's about spaces that you can actually create um, as an architect or as a designer or as a worker. Um, and one of the ones that I did with Meredith Boswick Lorenzo, who works for Soma Architects in New York, one was about permission space and opportunity space. And what you're describing there is this lovely idea of permission space. It's a space that doesn't just say, this is the way you'll behave. It actually gives you certain cues or certain invitations to act in slightly different ways. And that notion of opportunity space is just as important um, because without those affordances, without those like frictionless ways of going from thinking to actually doing, um, which you can do quite readily with pencil and paper, but doing that in a digital space is actually slightly harder. So there's a whole bunch of what I would call almost like affordances in the space or in the studio here. Um, there's a whole bunch of conditions having the right people in there, having a curriculum that supports it, having the right training and the right um, attitudes and disposition. You know yourself, yeah. Alison, how hard it is to do a studio afternoon if you're in a bad mood. Just as a simple trivial example, but you know what it's like. Yeah. Sometimes it can come down to that. I've seen quite a few creative careers ruined by you know just a bad mood. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. And and timetabling. I mean, I talk yeah. about in my work, yeah. mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I look at um, how people value the subject. Mm -hmm. And and mm -hmm. as part of that, I wanted to involve um, people who did the timetable. Yeah, completely agree. One because, the, yeah. yeah. Well, one of the big findings we had from our um, work on um, studio, like distance studio, was just how important silly things like in fact, I'm going to take that back immediately. It wasn't a silly thing. How foundational and important things like curriculum cues were. And one of those cues was how much time do you have to spend in these little... And again, we are very careful about what we call chunking at the Open University. So little chunks of learning, like a design method or an activity that sits inside a method. And giving the right amount of time to each of these and knowing that some students will take 15 times as much or you know, a quarter as much time and allowing your learning design to flex round about that. These things are not just nice-to-haves or things that control it. They're actually things that students use to negotiate their understanding of the subject. Mm -hmm. So timetabling is one of those things because it gives them an idea of, well, why does it take me five hours to do something that the timetable suggests it should just be five minutes? The next question is, what is wrong with me? And you can see where it goes from there. And again, in a studio, an approximate studio, if I was a tutor there in higher education, I've got the luxury of seeing the confusion, the, the hurt almost on that student's face and saying, I can correct that situation because you're in that moment. If you're lucky to be there at that right time, if you're at a distance or if you're in a busy classroom setting, you know, sometimes we don't have the luxury yeah. in those spaces that our higher education counterparts might have. And that can be quite a challenge. Um, but anyway, that's a... Yeah, know, but another. but yeah, time. T some of those things, timetabling, location yep. of the space, yep. the light. Yep. Um, as you say, what what did I teach last lesson I'm coming yeah, yeah. into here? What baggage am I am I carrying? You know, what are they carrying yes. as they come from Absolutely. one subject to another? Yep. Not the, so, yeah, cool. There's a whole load of things to kind of explore. I don't think we've even kind of touched half the list that we'd written. So because I'm just Sorry. conscious of time, you know, and, and people listening and, and if they're anything like me, their head is exploding and you've given me a whole list of things um, to, to follow up and to kind of put in the show notes. I think people would really like links to and any stuff about the studio stuff, I think people would really enjoy. Cool. So I'm going to bring it to a close. I'm going to say, but I am going to get you back because we are going to oh. continue this conversation. Okay. 
and I'm going to say, I'm going to put out there and say, if people want to send me questions or leave me a message on SpeakPipe, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So SpeakPipe is a an audio way of uh, leaving messages oh, cool. nice. so, of, quest- of questions that they want to ask you, Derek, or us <laughs> to talk about. Then we can kind of come back and pick some of those those things up because there was a whole load of things there that I was thinking, oh, I want to know more about that. And I'm sure other people listening will want to know more and, and we could have another conversation. Definitely. And that'd be oh, great. Fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you've you've kind of you've made my brain hurt. Sorry. What would you say that is? That's deep cognition. What language <coughs> you used around that? You can say that, or or it's maybe just complete confusion. It could just be dissonance. It could be just pure cognitive <laughs> dissonance. Um, I'm just like this is so out of my comfort zone. How am I going to justify yeah, this? Yeah. yeah, not quite. No, no, it's not. It's not. You've kind of got my my head spinning, and I'm now thinking. I'm, I emailed Eddie Norman this morning and said we haven't had lunch for a while. Should we get a date in the diary? And I'm thinking. Yeah, I need, I need another meeting with 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 uh, Eddie because he'll he'll explain some of these things to me, and we can talk about them in a different way. So, <laughs> but no, it's been great, Derek. Thanks ever so much. Yep, no problem at all. Thank you. You've been listening to the Talking DNT podcast with me, Alison Hardy. You can connect with me on Twitter at Hardy underscore Alison. Show notes and transcripts for each podcast episode can be found on my website, alisonhardy.work. Thanks for listening.